you would open your Bibles to Luke, Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, and we will start our message this morning in verse 32. Luke 6, 32. Hear the word of our Lord. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend To those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come before you and sing and hear your word read, even parts that maybe are unfamiliar to us. Thank you that you stir us up as we re-engage your word every single Lord's Day. I pray that this text would be no exception as we face, each of us, many different circumstances in our lives to either love like sinners or to love like sons of the Most High. I pray that you would convict us and show us where our love is lacking and bring repentance so that we won't miss out on the reward. In Jesus' name. Amen. It was the original plan to preach through Habakkuk in four Sundays. I tried to put two chapters, essentially, into one Sunday last week, and the sermon was long, and I apologize, but not really. You know that, right? (laughs) But that was in part to clear the way for this text and these considerations. I feel particularly burdened for this, that we would obey our Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't yet preached through a gospel. Um, Maybe we will in due time. But this passage in particular is, is timely. And it's needful that we as a church particularly understand what the Lord Jesus is saying. We won't go through this word by word like we typically do with uh, expositional preaching, but uh, we'll read through it multiple times, highlighting themes and the structure of the passage and how it really works. But the first thing I want to say to you is this. This is not an isolated theme. It's not like we're reading through uh, Scripture and like the the Scripture reading for us this morning, like one place it addresses head coverings, right? In in, in 1 Corinthians 11, and we got to process that in, in, in the ways that we do. This text isn't like that. This is, as it were, one representative of a big basket of terms. And I have termed this idea or the undergirding idea of this text and what unites it to so many other texts as inconvenient love. And what I mean by that is what the Lord Jesus alludes to, love in ways that are inconvenient for you. What he means is in ways where you don't get the payback from the person that you're loving. Don't be uh, looking to gain something from the person that you do good towards. Um, Love those that can't pay you back. And here are just a, a few things to think about. And uh, these are several other verses. 
I've just selected a few. I know you probably don't, but I wish we had the time this morning to read through, consider, and embrace all the implications of all of these relevant texts of just this theme and the New Testament, but we'll merely mention a few of them. The first we actually read in the passage on 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul, in speaking about the Lord's Supper, he says that if we don't love those who are different from us, maybe in a different economic strata than us, if we don't defer to them, to those that are maybe less well-to-do than us in our midst, then our meetings are not for the better, but for the worse. And it, in large measure, Paul clearly says, invalidates the Lord's Supper itself. It's the only biblical reason given to perhaps not take the supper At the level of a church, there are reasons not to individually, but the only reason to stop taking it as a church is to sort out these issues of love and preferential treatment and those in different strata treating others and not waiting for them, not manifesting the unity of the body of Christ. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the younger half-brother of our Lord, leader of the church in Jerusalem, after he saw his Lord and older half-brother raised from the dead, says that, If we show preferential treatment to those that we are inclined to like and enjoy more, for whatever reason, for them it was because they were rich, but for us it could be because they like the same things we do. For whatever reason, if we show preferential treatment, we show ourselves to be sinners, evil judges, and transgressors. In the parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel over the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, the Lord specifies that perfection itself. He he ends the Sermon on the Mount with, therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, at least that section of the sermon. So he's saying that perfection in the pursuit of holiness is very much or almost perfectly overlays loving those that it's inconvenient to love. In Romans 15, 1-7, Paul tells us that seeking to please ourselves, even if it looks respectable outwardly, cuts at the heart of the gospel and shows us to be walking out of step with the example of Jesus. Indeed, he says that we are under obligation not to please ourselves, but rather to bear even with the failings of others because of the example of Jesus. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, a familiar passage to many of you, I'm sure, um, perhaps building on the theme that he already discussed in Romans 15, Paul clearly shows us that humility, not just towards God, that's, that can be safely assumed at all times, but humility towards other people is one of, if not the primary way, we should understand the mind of Christ. He reasons that this is what Christ did for us. Out of selfless love and humility towards us, therefore, we should live lives just like Jesus in that most essential way of understanding the mindset of His incarnation. Consider others more significant than yourselves, like Jesus did. And in Luke Chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Just a few chapters later in the story from our passage today. In that most beloved story of the Good Samaritan, the Lord powerfully demonstrates in very memorable fashion that in order to fulfill what is known as the royal law or the law of Christ, namely to love your neighbor as yourself, it it, it requires that we show love and compassion towards those who need it, not simply those we want to show it towards. And it could be said that the whole point of the parable is that if we're not prepared to show compassion and love towards those that are not like us, then we haven't come to understand the first thing about love. And we don't understand what God has done. As I said, I'm under burdens to preach this text for several reasons, but with a title like I've given it today, the main reason is not rebuke or even admonition, but 
rather to help you gain reward. Jesus himself, your Lord, your great older brother, your high priest, is concerned about your eternal reward. And so am I. Understand, if you don't love like he is commending us to love, then you will miss out on eternal reward. If you do love like he commands us to love, then your reward will be great. That's why I love you. I'm responsible to the Lord to tell you how you can increase your reward in heaven and not miss out. The second thing that we should look at is that this idea of inconvenient love is a window into all virtue. A window into all virtue. I I want you to look closely at the structure of the text. The logic that the Lord Jesus employs to make his point. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to those, uh, lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So Jesus is commanding us in this respect, not with a simple do what I tell you. Sometimes we can think of God that way. Just do it because he told you to. Jesus is explaining to us the rationale, the reason he gives us this particular and particularly difficult command to love what may be, from our perspective, the unlovable. He gives us two kindnesses in speaking this way. He stoops to our level to explain the reason behind the command. He doesn't just say something like, Uh, love those people you can't stand because I told you so. And secondly, he explains it in an ironclad way. This is so simple, and it's irrefutable logic. Even the most base among our species can understand Christ's point. Even those who don't know God, who don't care a rip about their eternal reward, will love like that. So there's no benefit to you. What is this window then, as I have called it, into all virtue? I think this is a principle that can stand over everything that we would call right and wrong. If your good works and your love and your virtue is convenient to you, it's probably worthless. Or say it another way. If your version of living the good life, being a good person etc., does not really require faith in the promises of God for the world to come. And if all you do could be just as well done by a non-believer, someone who doesn't trust in those promises, then can you really expect to stand there on judgment day and hear the Lord say, well done? Therefore, This idea of inconvenient love can be broadened out to any other hypothetical scenarios. Just take the Lord's statement. Even sinners do the same. Judge what you're doing by that statement. Even sinners do the same. Run through it in your mind. I'm exhorting you to do so. Even one who has no faith in the Lord God and no love for the Lord Jesus can fill in the blank. Pay their mortgage on time, care about the community, give to nonprofits. Think of it this way Do you know what kind of life and love is really acceptable to the Lord? It's the acts of love that you virtually never see non-believers doing. 
And I think, honestly, that's one of the reasons we have such a hard time appealing to non-believers to become Christians. Because if we have been loved this way by God, and it is true that we begin to love the same way that God loves, then when we present the gospel to unbelievers and we say, look at what God has done, then they look at us, His supposed people, and say, I don't buy it. Because even sinners would do the same. Number three, this idea of inconvenient love, as, as many of you have probably already begun to do, is, is a way to test yourselves. The text works as a test, and I hope the mature among us have already begun to do that this morning. Look at your life and your love and your understanding of virtue and put it up against the clear test of this text. Do you mainly love those who love you? Do you mainly do good to those who do good to you? Do you mainly lend to those from whom you expect to receive? And I've included the word mainly here because of the condition of our heart. We'll do an occasional thing here and there to take our conscience off the hook. So they say, oh, here's, here's that one token thing I did where I didn't expect to receive anything back. And then it excuses us from all of this convenient love, virtue, doing good works, lending that we do. Sometimes the motive, even in the very small handful of inconvenient acts of love that we do, is to perhaps to soothe our conscience. So it undercuts it all. You know, there's, there's this, a phrase for this that's very common. People talk about this idea of narcithropy. Narcithropy, the idea that we're, we allow ourselves to be still narcissistic in our giving, in our char- charity, and in our mercy because it makes us feel good. We'll even see people post things on their social media accounts or whatever else or talk about all the good that they have done because it makes you feel good. It gives you the fuzzies. And so you keep doing it and it's, it's, it's narcissism just expressed in doing stuff for other people. Consider a question to this text. Is it just in the arena of love, doing good deeds, and lending? So if you can find an area, a quadrant of human behavior that's not loving, doing good, or lending, you're like, okay, here I don't have to love like that. I don't think that's what the Lord is intending. I think he's given us these three data points, lending, Doing good deeds and loving as kind of a triangle of all human activity. Anything that you would do is somewhere in the mix of all those things. And I think that's proven when he begins to make the positive case in verses 35 and 36. He says that the Father is kind and merciful. He doesn't say loving or lending. So it shows that in Jesus' mind, the the categories are broader than just those three arenas. I'm saying that because we're legalists and we're like, well, this doesn't fall into one of those three, so I can not listen to the Lord Jesus here. I think this begins us on a path, if we really embrace the Lord Jesus' teaching here, uh, maybe a hard path of self-examination. Here are a few examples. Do I romance my wife or speak kindly to her because I am expecting something from her? Do I come to church and drag my kids there also because I want them to be a certain way and I hope that I can get something out of the service? Do I arrange my social activities primarily because I want some kind of enjoyment and pleasure? Do I spend time with people I spend time with primarily because I am benefited by their presence and they like me too? Do I engage and talk to people like I do? Do I seek out the people that I do primarily because I enjoy what they can provide for me? You know, we lambast the churches around or around the globe that preach the prosperity gospel or other things. Churches that are gospel-less in their focus. And they're maybe filled with non-believers who are professing as followers of the Lord. But if we look at our behavior, 
with each other? Is our love and version of community that much different? We want to spend time with those who are like us and don't make us uncomfortable. We want to love conveniently and it's godless all the same. Number four, convenient love lacks any benefit. You might modify that to say, and this is spilling the beans a little bit, right now. The Lord tells us what he thinks of this kind of behavior, this version of love and virtue and lending. Let's read it again. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? The answer, nothing. It's no benefit. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? The answer is clear. It's no credit. It accrues to none of your benefit on the final day. I want you to notice simultaneously the mercy and sternness of our Lord Jesus. Because Jesus has a judgment day context, and he has his sights set on the final day, he can be this blunt and honest, and all of it be out of love. He wants you to have benefit. Convenient love lacks any benefit. Even if you receive something back from the person that you're loving in a convenient way, it's no credit. It's no real benefit in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I want to address something. I've been avoiding a certain terminology up to this point because this is an issue we need to address. Someone pref- some would prefer that the two ends of the spectrum of this kind of love would be selfless love and selfish love. And while that is true to a degree, I want you to see something very clearly. In some ways, this is one of the most exhilarating things I've ever been taught and discovered about the Christian faith. Jesus appeals to us, he commands us to love in inconvenient ways, not so that we can be stoically flawless or selfless. Rather, he appeals to us to think more about what we will gain as a result of our actions. Look at it. He says three times, essentially the same thing. What benefit is that to you? What benefit is that to you? What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. If he had left that out, then it would be stoicism. It would be just, don't even think about it, just do what's good for the sake of doing good. That's not how Jesus wants you to think. So understand, do not put yourself under the burden of doing something that's impossible. You can't live in a way where you don't think about what the result or benefit of your actions will be. Rather, or I should say this first, the problem is not wanting some gain out of your actions. The problem is is that this way of loving and lending and doing good to those that will pay you back, Jesus rejects that version of love here because your sights are set on earthly gain. Jesus is turning us away from these faulty and illegitimate versions of love and doing good because he wants us to gain what is better. And what is that better thing to gain? We'll see shortly in a few more points. Number five, I want you to understand the connection between the gospel and inconvenient love. Verses 32 through 34, as we've read through now multiple times, state what could be called the the negative case. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and here's why. 
And then verses 35 and 36 give us a summary of the positive case. Do this, and here is why. In short, the positive case is this. To be like God in your love. And though the gospel is not mentioned explicitly in this text, it runs deeply beneath it, does it not? Jesus himself, he's the very embodiment of the love of God, standing there teaching people, saying, don't love in ways to receive back from those that you do good towards. Rather, love like your heavenly Father who gives and loves his enemies. And there he is standing as the visible manifestation of God's love for his enemies. Love like my Father has loved you in sending me. I believe that the central appeal of Christ in this message is this. If you cherish the kindness and mercy of God, primarily and most clearly seen in the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then your manner of love has to begin, it must at least begin to conform to the way in which God shows us love in the gospel. Let me say that again more clearly. If you cherish the kindness and mercy of God, primarily and most clearly seen in the gospel, then your manner of love has to begin to conform more and more to the same kind of love that God shows to us in the gospel. This is what some, perhaps clumsily, have called gospel-centered living. Some people love hyphenating terms. So we have theological terms in abundance now because we can hyphenate things. But this is the Bible's answer for what it means to live in a gospel-centered way. It is not increasing in your theological acumen. It is not more participation in church activities. It is not greater influence in the lives of your friends. It is not even a deep repose and rest and just being okay with whatever, like being, being unassailable. It is loving like God. That is what it means to be gospel centered. This is what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. And this maybe helps us finally have insight into how it is possible that all the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in simply two commands. Love the Lord with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says in Romans 13.10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And glory of glories, brothers and sisters. We do not just have the example of Christ to follow as a seemingly impossible standard of love for us to conform to, but through faith in Christ, clothed in His gospel, we are given the power to love this way. You have been uniquely equipped by the work of God to love others in inconvenient ways. Because the same Spirit that drove Christ to love the way that He loved, to die the way that He died, to rise again for our justification, is the same Spirit at work in you. Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You cannot manufacture this love. It's impossible You cannot stir it up in yourself on your own. The Holy Spirit Himself has been poured into your hearts so that you may love like God loves. Consider, before we move to the next point, the inconvenience of the love of God for you. It's almost an understatement. We were the ones with a debt. We were the ones who made war. We were the ones who betrayed. We were the ones who forsook. We were the ones who dug wells to water ourselves that were broken 
abandoning the cistern that God had created for us to nourish our souls. We were the ones who said, no, God, I will do it my way. That's what sin is. And yet, because of his great mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, he sent his son to die for us. There is no more inconvenient experience than taking on and drinking to the dregs the wrath of God. And that is his offer to you now today. If you will but take him at his word and accept his terms of peace, then all of your debt, all of your betrayal, all of your shame is then wiped away and given to Christ and you gain his righteousness. That is inconvenient on God's part. Dear brothers and sisters, if this is your confession then there is no third option for you. You have been called and empowered, authorized and commanded to live and love in this very same way. It will be hard. (laughs) It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. So don't condemn yourself if it is not perfect. None of us will live or love perfectly in this way, of course, until the Lord finally changes us when he returns. But oh, that we would strive with all zeal and vigor to love like our Heavenly Father. And speaking of the love of your Heavenly Father, number six, the family of God and inconvenient love. We're skipping ahead a little bit in the text because I want to end with this idea of reward. It is that significant. And he says, here's what we're looking at. And you will be sons of the Most High. Love your enemies do, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Understand, uh, this is a blessing to, to be sons of God. He's, he's not m- meaning that as a reward. The two ideas are separate. The reward is something, and we'll discuss that in a little bit, and being called or being sons of God, that is not a reward for your virtue. Okay, We've got to be very careful here. Uh, you don't get sonship. You don't force your adoption into the family of God by being loving. Okay, That's a very popular version of righteousness that's swirling around in the churches from academic levels down to church plants. It's very popular and it is damning that you would gain entrance into the family of God by being a good person. It's essentially right back to Rome. Um, I don't want to spend too much time there because I can nerd out on these things. It's bad ideas. So this is not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, love like this so that God will call you his son. So how do we understand this? I think what the Lord is saying is something like what he says in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, in a very very familiar passage, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, in biblical thought, naming or calling something something is very close. It's it's, it's almost the same thing as saying what it is. And I think the point is this. On the last day, when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, and the intentions of the heart are laid bare, what will the Lord Himself put forward as proof that you were one of His? What will the Lord parade out in front of the watching crowd of angels that, yes, this one indeed was born again? This one is one of my children. Among other things, it will be that you loved like God loves. I think this helps us understand how we should also battle unbelief and doubt in our hearts. The Bible gives us many ways to reassure our hearts before God, before a condemning conscience, before the enemy. Uh, But one of my favorites is 1 John 3, 14. He says, we know. Did you know that you can know? 
we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So it's proof for the Lord to present in the courtroom on the last day. Yes, this one is a son of God because look at how they loved. Justified by faith alone, proven in the courtroom of God on the basis of your love in part. And how do you assure your hearts? The same thing. I begin to love like God loves, and that's inexplicable to me. So it must be that I am one of His. That's how it works. If you've seen many uh, uh, pictures of me when I was a kid, because my mom posts stuff on social media, so I apologize from 20, 30 years ago. Uh, most shiries have this sideways smile. Uh, and I'm seeing it reflected in my children, too. One eye squints just a little bit when we smile. I actively work against it because it looks a little odd. Most families have some kind of family trait. And you can pick up on it. Ah, that's a shiry. I see that sideways grin. We don't, we don't do it consciously. It just starts to happen. One side of the eye starts twitching up. And, and the reason I tell you that is that in the family of God, we have some family traits. And one of them, if not the main one, is that we love each other expecting nothing in return. We love like our Heavenly Father loves. I want to give an encouragement to the downcast. Three things, actually. Three encouragements. If, you're, if you look at your own life and you say, man, all, all of this, it just kind of upends all that I've been doing. I, I can't produce it in myself. If you have a condemning conscience, listen. Seeing a lack of this love in your heart, but yet being troubled by it, shows that the Spirit is at work to produce it. So yield to Him. You don't have to start a 15-step process to begin to produce this love in you. The Spirit Himself brings that love, or in some ways is that love towards others. If you see a lack that troubles you, rejoice. God is at work. Number two, nothing, this is more an exhortation than specifically an encouragement, but nothing will squelch this kind of love more than the allurements and the attractions of the world. It is so much easier, brothers and sisters, to enjoy your favorite TV program, your favorite game, your favorite team, your favorite hobby, your favorite job, your favorite family and friends than it is to enjoy your broken and weak brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are in an age when we can just pick and choose whoever we want to be friends with. While, as I have said, this isn't an unselfish love because we're supposed to be thinking about the gain that we will get. It's not a purely unselfish in, in that way, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. It's not like the Stoics would say, it does require you to die to yourself. The Bible makes no qualms about that. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Number three, Perhaps this kind of love is so difficult for us because we have not trained ourselves to set before our eyes the real God-ordained and God-created reward. Perhaps we're just trying to be like the Stoics. I keep alluding to them, I don't explain who they are, but these are people that are like, if there was any benefit in virtue, it makes it invirtuous at all. God has created and ordained a specific reward for your actions. So number seven, the reward for inconvenient love. It's not a selfless love that we should be pursuing and to take a jab at a bad idea. It is not reckless love that we are supposed to be pursuing. What would it sound like if that's what Jesus were wanting us to do? He would just say something like this. If you love those who love you, that's of no benefit. And if you do good to those who do good to you, that's no benefit. If you lend to those whom you receive, that's no credit. 
So be like God. But he throws something else in there, doesn't he? I want you to see this and relish it and embrace it. It does change everything about your Christian life. Verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Understand, I'm trying to destroy a very specific idea with this point, this idea of disinterested love, where you've essentially done something that's impossible and taken yourself out of the equation in doing right and wrong. Jesus cares deeply about you getting something out of your love. And that is counterintuitive. And in some ways, if we're not paying attention, this would just completely overturn everything we've just said. I want you to pay close attention to this. I know it can be difficult when we've been this long so far. This whole consideration of love, what true love is, is built on the clear assertion from Jesus that there is no such thing as disinterested or purely selfless love. No such thing. Is Jesus talking out of both sides of his mouth? Look at it. Expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. If you're just reading and not paying close attention, those are directly contradictory ideas. I usually don't write anything in my Bible, and I don't commend anyone to do that, but this might be a place where it could be helpful, where it says, expecting nothing in return, you could add a little blurb that says, from them, meaning from the person that you're doing the good towards. That's clearly the the implication of the text, is it not? Love those who will love you back, lend to those who will give to you back. Do good to those who will do good to you. Expect nothing in return from them. So there's two options here, two ways of living. Option one, doing good to get something back from the person you do good towards. Option two, doing good to anyone you can, especially those who can't or won't pay you back, to get something back from the Lord. And in fact, this shows us another window into all biblical ethics. Pursuing righteousness is very much about falling further and further into debt to the Lord. What do you have that you didn't receive? Any level of commitment that you have to do the right thing? That's from the Lord. Any righteousness or track record of doing good to others that you have done? It's from the Lord. So if you increase in your ability to love like your heavenly Father, it will be because of His grace. Nothing you did other than applying your own effort to the grace that he's already given you. And even the desire to do that. It is he who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's all from him. And so we do good to anyone we can, expecting nothing in return from them because we want more from the Lord. That's the answer, and that is surprising, I would wager, for many of us. I grew up in church. I had a lot of the Bible memorized. I did not come to understand this until I was about 18 or 19 years old. The God wants you to love and serve and do good for a reward. It's just not maybe the reward that you're thinking about or want right now. Here's a few biblical examples. Whenever you're trying to make a point theologically, just pull from statements from David, Jesus, Paul, and John the Baptist, and you've made your case. So here's from those four men. Psalm 16, verse 11. We read this 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 morning, and I had no anticipation that this was going to be the psalm, and this was going to overlap with this sermon. just shows you how pervasive this idea is. You make known to me the past of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
David is praising God, not because it's just the right thing to do, but because God is better. Or another, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked, this is familiar to many of us. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. David wants that. That is his reward and he is pursuing it with all vigor. This is the one thing I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. And Paul, there's almost no better, clearer example. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. This is where it all came together for me. Philippians chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 8, though the whole thing is important. I'm sorry, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And if we just stopped there, they'd be like, okay, yeah, do the right thing because it's the right thing. Don't think about a reward. Don't think about yourself at all. It is the best thing to do because it's God, so just get after it. If you suffer, whatever. It's still the best thing to do. But he continues. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul, you're already a Christian. What are you talking about? I want to gain Christ. I want more of Christ. So I count all this as loss so that I can gain Christ myself, is what he's saying. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. Paul, you already know the Lord Jesus. You saw him. Yeah, I want to know him more. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained this. Paul knew that he was justified. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Think of it this way. Try to gain Christ with the same vigor and zeal that He has sought to gain you. Brothers, verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Is your aim to gain Christ? Is it the reward of gaining Christ? That's Paul's motivation. He wasn't doing the right thing just because it was the right thing. Or just because he would go to hell if he didn't. He had his eyes set on a reward. And John the Baptist, this is from John 3, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. And Jesus himself, Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. It wasn't just pure, stoic submission to the will of the Father. It was because the Father guaranteed that on the other side of drinking the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, there would be joy for Christ. So don't pursue a false humility and an impossibility. Oh, whatever you want, Lord, I don't even care how it affects me. I'll do what you want. It doesn't matter how it turns out for me. 
even if we say we want God to be glorified, and if that's not motivated out of a desire to have God as your reward, that's just a more sophisticated version of unbelief. That doesn't honor God. That is not the motivation of Christ. That is not what gave Paul the ability to love and serve like he did. That is not the heart of the greatest man born of woman. And that is not the heart of the man after God's own heart. They wanted something badly and did everything in their power to gain it. So what, is that, what does all this have to do with our text? What's the connection? This is this idea of reward. And your reward will be great. Jesus doesn't specify exactly what that is here, though it can be inferred. The idea is this. You have to put this reward that Jesus Christ promises before your face every day, or you won't live like this. You'll be looking for reward from the person that you do good towards. You'll be looking for something out of it. What enables us to love like God, brothers and sisters, is the reward of being like God. To delight in God, namely in the person of Jesus Christ, even as God himself delights in himself in Christ. In sharing the love of God and growing in our conformity to his love, it's not just that our reward will be great, it's that our reward will be God himself. This is how you gain God. You've got to learn to love like He loves or you won't know Him like you ought to know Him. You won't be able to be, uh, as Jesus Himself says, united with Him and the Son and the Spirit together in this mystic union in heaven forever. That's John 17. That can't happen unless you begin to pursue loving like your Heavenly Father. And He will accomplish it. Because He's merciful, He will bring many things into our lives to cause us to flee from convenient love and alternative styles of virtue. If your goal is just Christ-likeness generally, like, well, I guess I should be like Jesus. That's tough. I mean, talk about a high standard, an impossible standard. Got to be like Jesus. Fail every day, right? If that's your goal, that will never get you off of your couch. It will never help you past your bitterness. And it will never stop the indulgence of the flesh. Rather, to gain Christ, which is what it means to be like Christ, will. So lastly, a few points of application. How shall we then live? Number one, entrust yourself to Him Believe in the Lord Jesus. In a sermon like this, it's important that we connect it all back to faith or trust in the Son of God. We believe in Him in a couple of ways because of this text. We should just take Him at His word that what He says about love and the right way to love and the reward for loving the right way and the lack of reward for loving the wrong way is true. We just need to believe Him. We must believe Him. But also, we should believe that God Himself is worth it. That loving in inconvenient ways and participating in the very nature of God through loving like He loves is worth it. It is a worthy reward. And it's better than anything that you can get out of convenient love in your life. Real Christian faith, Christian trust, is believing that He is, in fact, worth it as your great reward. This is the central reason that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And why doing anything good or loving is of no benefit? Because it requires no faith. If what you're doing requires no faith and trust in the Son of God that He will stand on the earth, then it's no good. It's no benefit for you. Number two, this applies to the situation in Afghanistan and all situations of persecution. It's one of the reasons I gravitated towards this text. I'll read the verses leading up to it. 
We're commanded to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is crazy, inconvenient love. And that's exactly what God has done for you. We wanted his blessings, and he gave us his son. Love your enemies, brothers and sisters. Number three, the Lord Jesus gets to define what true love is. Our world seems very interested in this idea of true love. There are so many candidates for what true love is. It happens in every Disney movie, perhaps. Someone says and opines the the value of true love, and we see it played out in one way or another. But Jesus tells us what true love is. It is loving, lending, and doing good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith, especially those who can't pay us back or won't pay us back, in order to build up for yourselves an eternal reward. That's different. I wish we could go through all the ways that that is so different from what the world says true love is. This is how Paul speaks about his own motivations. First Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Just read through the the seven letters to the seven churches in the Revelation to John, Jesus appeals to them to repent of their sin on basis of threat, but also of reward to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who endures, essentially. I will give fill in the blank. That reward has to be the apple of our eye because it is God himself. Gaining God himself is your reward. Number four, Try to understand some of ministry and the difficulty of doing church in this context. Pastors and staff people and leadership teams can spend so much time and resources making everything easy and convenient for everybody. And the only thing that will happen as a result of all of that effort and all of that money and all of that contriving is that you miss out on your eternal reward. Maybe it is God's plan that some of this would be difficult and be inconvenient so that you can have eternal reward. Number five, examine yourselves. This text is a test. How do I love? Do I show partiality? Do I hang out with those that are comfortable to me? Love and make connections that don't make sense to you or anyone else unless Jesus Christ himself is going to return and stand on the earth and render to each person according to his works. If your love makes sense, even if that isn't true, it's of no benefit. No benefit. Lastly, and this has been part of the idea this whole time, Live in view of the final day for reward. Faith looks in both directions. We look back to the cross of Jesus Christ as the basis for our justification and the ground of our hope. But we also look forward to the final day when He will vindicate the righteous and bring recompense against the wicked. Many of you are walking around maybe with a one-legged faith because you only look back at the cross for clarity and motivation. But the Lord will come and your reward will be great. You either believe that or you don't. And a life that makes sense, even if that isn't true, is worthless. 
You won't love or live for the eternal reward or live out of faith if you don't have this reward as an ever-present reality before your heart and mind. Even as Job said, My Redeemer will stand upon the earth, and I will see Him in my own flesh with my own eyes. That is what can motivate you and me, brothers and sisters, to live in a way that is inconvenient. May it be so. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Help us love like you have loved, O Heavenly Father. Strengthen us now as we go and as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.